we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and one of the things we're doing is we're using Jenga's this illustration of kind of the meaning of the Ten Commandments. Now, we often think of them as primarily God's moral laws for living, and while they're that, they're far more than that. They're God's foundational principles for building our lives and building our culture. And, and here's how it relates to Jenga. You know, we look at a Jenga set, and, and, and you've got to be careful taking out all the blocks, but as it gets played, there's certain blocks that become foundational. You know, if you've taken out the two sides, the one in the middle, the whole, the whole tower rests on that. You can't take that out. If you take out a foundational block, the whole tower is going to come down. And in the same way, we need to think of our life like a tower, our culture is a tower. And in this building of this, there are some blocks that are by nature foundational. They cannot come out without causing down, bring down the whole tower. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're God's foundational principles for building a successful life and a successful culture. And if we remember and keep these commandments, if we build our lives, if we build our culture upon them, they'll be the foundation of success and happiness. If we forget or break them, the consequences are tragic. The, the tower comes down. Now, this morning, we're looking at the second commandment. And, um, and let me start by reading the commandment as it's recorded in Exodus chapter 4. or tw- actually, ex- I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6. And uh, so let me start by reading that. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend. I thank you for the opportunity we have to spend this time diving into this passage. Father, I pray that you would continue to now speak through me. Thank you for what you're teaching me, and I pray that your spirit would speak and Father, that what we hear today would not be my opinions, my words, but Father, somehow through me, an imperfect um, messenger, that you would speak the truth of your perfect word. Father, help us to have hearts that are open to hear and understand and even apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, a few weeks ago, we had this really, really big family wedding. It's the first time we had our extended family together for a long time. And and this is the case with extended, you know, big family weddings. We took all kinds of pictures, you know, including this, you know, picture of the whole family. There's a whole bunch of us. And, uh, you, know, and it, you know, we took a picture with our immediate family and, and, you know, had that. And then, you know, I have this picture with my beautiful wife. And, and um, now let me ask you, if you look at this, does anybody notice maybe something a little unusual about this particular picture? Um, if, if some, some might notice it's, you know, that's my beautiful wife, but that's not me. Okay, that's my older brother, Larry. Now, a lot of people say that we look a lot alike. I personally don't see it. I, I've never had a hard time telling us apart. I've never looked at him and wondered which one of us he is. I mean, I've, I, but I've had, in fact, at the wedding, we had so many people telling us that we looked alike uh, that we decided to take a picture with each other's wives and then send it to our kids and see how many of them noticed. Uh, I sent it to my kids. Two have said something back. The other two haven't yet, so I don't know if they've not noticed or not. Now, you might be thinking, how could your kids not notice? Well, actually, some of you in this church are are guilty of the same thing. Uh, You see, my brother and his family often will come and visit on Christmas Eve. And he's told me every time that he comes and visits, after the service, he has numerous people come up to him and say, 
what a great service and compliment him on what a great service, even though we're not dressed at all alike. And so you all kind of get us confused as well. Now, now what if someone came up to me and started talking to me as, as I wasn't me, but I was my brother? Now, actually, that's happened. Now, I would, I'm, I'm going to say that a lot of times in humor, you exaggerate. I'm not exaggerating this at all. Um, Larry and I both have a friend, a mutual friend, and for some reason, over the last couple of years, he, every time he sees me, he thinks that I'm Larry, not, not myself. And this has happened numerous times. And we'll be talking, and, and I realize that, and I'll say, well, I'm not Larry, I'm Mike. And, and I'll tell him, and he just doesn't hear me. He keeps tell, talking. And after like five times, I'll tell him that, and I said, okay, I'll just, I'll just let him think I'm Larry. Um, in fact, in one conversation, he even told me about halfway through, he said, oh, by the way, I visited your brother's church a couple months ago. And I told him, well, I am my brother. And then he went on and gave me a review of my brother's church. And, and so it was, you know, <laughs> now those conversations are, are rather interesting, um, but they haven't ever been meaningful. Because as long as he thinks that I'm my brother, the fact is we're not having a real conversation. We're not having a real relationship. It's all based on a falsehood. Now, the basic principle at work in this is, is this. If, if you insist that I'm someone other than I am, no matter how sincere that belief may be, the fact is, we're never going to have a real relationship. Now, let me take that same idea and put it into another very practical way, a less humorous way. It's actually a very common problem amongst married couples early in their marriage that when they get married, one or both parties enters into the relationship thinking of their spouse as a person other than they really are. And so what happens is they go into this relationship and they have this picture of the spouse that they want to have, this idealized vision of, of who they want it to be, and not really seeing the person or loving them for who they are. And, and so they have this idealized picture that they project onto the other person, and, and it's a really common problem, because then what happens is that throughout the marriage, they're always judging the person by how well they match up to that idealized picture. And usually they fall short, and so it becomes a major source of conflict because they're failing short of that idealized image. They're not being who you want them to be, they're, in a sense, being who they are. In fact, you know, when you look at marriages that break up in the first couple of years, this is usually one of the primary me or, or, or reasons why it happens. You see, until both parties learn to really understand who the other person is, love and accept them for who they are, not who you want them to be, there's not going to be any chance of a healthy relationship. If, as long as you insist that they become who you want them to be, see, it's never going to work. And I've talked to couples before that have, this has been the case, and I'll, I'll tell the one person who has this image, and I'll say, you know, the fact is you really haven't ever loved that other person. You love the idea of that person. You're loving the projection of what you want them to be but you've really never loved and accepted them for who they are. And you can't have a healthy relationship with them until you love and accept them for who they are. And my friends, that's a basic principle in any relationship. It's true you know, for a friend of mine, if, in, 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 um, in who, if he thinks I'm my brother, it's true in a marriage. And it's likewise true even in our relationship with God. And it's not only true in our relationship with God, but like in marriage, it's actually an extremely common problem. You see, too often we can come to God and we can try to relate to him, not as the God who he is, but instead as the God whom we want him to be. See, we have in our mind this picture of what we think God should be, and we project that onto God. 
And when we do this, the fact is we don't have a real relationship with the real God. We're just relating to our own imagination and our own desires. In fact, that's such a common problem that when God gave the Ten Commandments, this is at the core of what the second commandment, the second foundation for a healthy life and culture is all about. Now, we saw last week that the Ten Commandments is, out of the Ten Commandments, the second is, is one of the more misunderstood. You see, the first is, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and we read this one a minute ago, and it talks about not making any kind of image. And it's common for people to think that the second is just kind of restatement of the first. Well, the first is, you shall have no other gods. And, and the second is, well, especially those gods that you make little statues of, especially don't worship them. But that's not what it's saying. See, the core meaning is, don't worship other is not don't worship other gods that, that you make an idol of. It's literally, don't, when you worship me, don't make me into an idol. Don't make me into an image. It prohibits making God into any kind of image. See, the first commandment teaches that we shouldn't worship false gods. The second commandment teaches that we shouldn't worship the true God falsely. And the key to understanding this is realizing that it's not just prohibiting making God into a physical image. We can be guilty of that, and, but it's not just that. See, we can be just as guilty when we make God into a mental image, using our imaginations of what we think he should be like. So the main focus of the second commandment is you must, you know, when you worship the true God, you don't worship him as you want him to be or how you prefer him to be. Worship him as he reveals himself to be. The fact is, all of us, uh, well, it's natural for us to try to make God into an image. And we see this all the time. You know, how often have we talked to people and people say, well, I think of God like this or just like this. And I think of God as the great architect who put things together. I think of God as a loving grandfather, you know, who just loves us and cares for us. And I, I like to think of God as, and Jesus as this, you know, teacher and example. And, and anytime when we say, I like to think of God just like what we're saying is, in a sense, saying, here's my mental image that I have of God. And, and my, when, when I think of this mental image, the fact that I think of him this way, I think that makes him that way. You see, what we've got to realize is my thinking of God doesn't change who he is. Just like my, if I think of my spouse as somebody totally different than who she is, it doesn't change who she is. It just means that I'm not really loving and valuing who she is. I can't have a relationship with her. Now, we go back to human relationships, and what do we know? We cannot, as long as we, as we understand this, as long as, as that I insist that, that the other person is someone other than they are, I can't really have that relationship. And, and think about this now. In a human relationship, what are we doing? We're trying to have a heart experience. We're trying to relate to the other person on a heart-to-heart -heart level, a personal, relational level, but it's a heart-to-heart -heart experience that's based on objective truth. Meaning, for me to relate to you at a heart level, I, I can't decide who you are. I can't, I can't make you subjective and say, well, you know, I'd like to think of you this way. No, I have to understand that who you are exists outside of me, outside of my opinions. And I have to understand who you are and relate to the truth of who you are. I don't get to define who you are. I just have to understand it and then relate. Now, if we understand that in human relationships, it's no less true in our relationship with God. The fact is that Christianity is a heart experience based on objective truth. It is a relationship with God, a, re a real relationship, a heart-to-heart -heart thing, but it's based on the objective truth of who he is. It's not based on our imagination of what we want him to be. 
You see, throughout the Bible, we're taught this idea. We're told that God has revealed himself in such a way that we can know who he is. There's objective truth that we can understand. Let's take, for example, the way that First John begins. Look at how John begins this. John was an apostle of Jesus. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's saying, this is the truth about God from the beginning. Going back to creation, before time began, from the very beginning, this is the truth about God. And as a follower of Jesus, now I'm not just teaching my opinion, my ideas, my desires about God, but I'm teaching this objective truth that I've seen with my eyes, that I've looked at, our hands have touched, and that's what I'm proclaiming to you. This life appeared, and we have seen it and testify it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he came and he's made it visible to us. And that's what we're proclaiming. And, and, it's, and who was it? It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, so that when we know who he is, it's also telling us about the Father. He continues, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, I'm not giving my opinion about God, he's saying. No, this is what we've seen and heard and now proclaim it to you. This is what God has revealed about himself through history. And only if you understand the true God who really is, then can you have fellowship with him, with his son Jesus and with God the Father. Now, the fact is we live in a time and culture where it's very, very common to, to see belief in God as being subjective. You know, so I believe God this way or the God that I believe wouldn't do this and and we have this idea of this God that we're comfortable with. But, but the fact is, when we're doing that, we're creating an image of God, and any God that we create isn't the true God. See, it doesn't matter what you think about God or what your opinions or my opinions are about God. The fact is that God exists outside of us. And, and if we've created an image in our mind, that's not the true God. So we can look throughout the Bible and we can pick and choose, and people often will do this, and I don't like that, and I don't, the God that I believe wouldn't do this, and, and we're constructing this idea of the God that we want. And again, let me put it in terms of human relationships. Uh, you know, let's say if somebody comes up to me and says, well, Mike, you know, you know I really want this great relationship with you, and I want to get to know you really well, and, but, but before we get going, I want you to know that you said that, you know, that you're, you're married to Sandy and you have four kids and you were grown, grew up here in Ohio. And, and I know that's what you said about yourself. But personally, you see, I always like to think of you as someone who was born in India. And, and you were raised by the League of Assassins. And you have a secret identity. And you lived there until you came over here to America to pursue your NBA career as a center in the NBA. And that's who I like to think of you. And I might be looking at this. That guy sounds really interesting. I'd like to meet him. Um, but that's not me. That's a long way from me. And as long as you insist that that's who I am, so the fact of the matter is we're never going to have a, a relationship because you're not controlled by the truth of who I am. And I'm, I'll tell you who I am, but you have to relate to who I am, the real me, as I tell you. And so it is in our relationship with God. The Bible teaches the same thing, that we must have a relationship with the God who is as he's revealed himself. And if we have this God that we make up in our own mind, what we have is really a projection of our own wishes. It's not a personal God. We don't have a God that can talk back to us. A real person is always going to talk back. If I have in my own mind, I'm always going to agree with myself. And so God's always agreeing with us. 
And we think about that and says, no, a real person is going to argue. We're going to have a disagreement, especially if it's God who's outside of us. See, but that's part of the problem. We want a God that accepts and affirms and never disagrees. In fact, when we say, I think of God like this, what we're really doing is that we are, we're making a projection of ourself. It's a false God. It's an image that we've made that we put this projection on a wall, but it's not who he really is. It's projecting ourself, our own values, our own opinions. And whatever relationship we have is just with a projection of ourself, not with the true God. Now, that might even sound offensive, and how can you say that? Well, here's, we've got to remember that there's this relational principle that is true for all of us, including our relationship with God. Relationship means loving God for who truly is. It's not who I want him to be. And just as it would be foolish to try to have a marriage based on a mental image of a spouse that is totally dis disengaged from who they are, but who they want them to be, and I continue to push and, and try to make them become who I want them to be, we know that will never work. You see, and if we understand that in human relationships, so it is equally foolish, even more so, to have this, try to have this relationship with God that is an image that we have created in our mind. It's not the true God. All we're doing is we're relating to a projection of ourself, projection of our opinions. Now, that raises a hard question. Some people will say, well, then how do we know that we have a true belief in who God really is? Because there's a lot of opinions about God. And, and so how do we know that our view of God is based on the truth? Well, here we go back and we say, well, the fact is God has revealed himself so that we can know him. Now, I realize that if I say anything about God and claim it to be true, and especially claim that not only it's true, but other opinions are false, there are some people that are going to say, well, you know, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that arrogant for you to come back and say that your beliefs are right my, and other people's are wrong? And here's why I have to be really clear about what I'm saying and what I believe. The issue is not what I believe. I am not saying that my opinions and beliefs are right. In fact, I'm going to admit that it's natural for all of us, including myself, to naturally have wrong ideas about God, and that's true of me as well. But what I'm doing here is I'm not trying to do a contrast between my opinions are right and someone else's is wrong. What I'm saying is the contrast is between God's opinion about himself as revealed in the Bible and what we may feel. You see, when we look at this, I believe that God has revealed himself in his word so that we can know the truth about him. And the issue is what he says about himself is right. God's opinion about himself always wins. It's not that, you know, I'm, the fact is, is that there's a humility that I've had to learn because I naturally have come to God with false beliefs. We all do. You see, as a child, we come with immaturity. and we get older, we come with visions that are based on our culture and based on our experience. All of us start with wrong views of God. And the only way to be able to come to God is to have the humility of saying, God, my opinions aren't right. And I'm willing to let you confront me and, and correct me as what you say in the words so that you shape me. I'm not going to try to make you squeeze into my opinions, but I'm going to let you reshape me by what your word says. In fact, let's look at this in the opening uh, words of the book of Hebrews. 
it tells us this idea. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So going back to the very, you know, the very beginning of what we see in, in Genesis, God has spoken through prophets. God has given people that he spoke through as prophets, and he had them then take the words and write them, so he's revealed himself through his word. So we can know God through what he's revealed through his word, through the Bible. See, from the beginning, God didn't leave us to guess as to who he was. He didn't want us to make out our own image. He revealed himself through his word so that we can know him, we can have a relationship with him based on an accurate knowledge of who he is. Now, that was a partial. And then he said, okay, well, that's where he started, but then he continued. Go back to Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he am appointed heir of all things, and through him he made the universe. So now he's revealed himself even more perfectly. It's totally consistent with everything that he already said, but it's even more clear through the revelation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who came and took on human flesh. Verse 3 continues, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power, his powerful word. So because we had a hard time understanding a God that we couldn't see, God said, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to take an image. I'm going to become something you can see and you can relate to so that through Jesus Christ, we can understand it. So he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus. Now, in this, someone might say, well, it depends what you believe about Jesus because all these people have different opinions. And well, here's where, again, where he's revealed himself through his son. And just as he had prophets who would write down what he revealed in the past, he had his apostles who wrote down the truth about Jesus. So they wrote an accurate representation of who Jesus was, of, of what he said, of what he taught, of what he did. That's what John said in 1 John. And this isn't my opinions, what we've seen, what we've heard. I'm, I'm recording this because it's an accurate accounting of what Jesus revealed about himself uh, through his life and through his ministry and death. And the challenge for all of us then is to realize that we come to the second commandment and it's calling us to humble ourselves. To humble ourselves and to realize that when I come to God, I'm going to have wrong ideas. But when the Bible disagrees with something that I think or that I want to think about God, am I going to try to make him into a mental image and force him to be who I want him to be or expect him to be? Or am I going to let him confront me and correct me and have the humility to let him reshape some of my definitions and opinions so that I be, believe not my image, but who he's revealed himself to be. See, and if I say that a certain view of God is right, I want you to realize that I'm always going to go back and say, well, here's where it says it in the Bible. And that's not a statement of arrogance, that's a statement of humility. You see, I'm not saying these things because I think it or because it's what's natural to me. It's because I've let God humble me and correct me and shape me and, and grow in me a different view of God that's still growing in its understanding because there's still things that he's correcting because I want to make sure that God, my understanding of God isn't based on my personal opinion or culture, but that what God reveals about himself always takes precedent over whatever else I might have think. Now, so the, the image here, is, or the idea is, okay, don't make any false image. Don't, in mental, it could be a physical, but more commonly, it's this, this mental image that we have. And what I want to do just in this, in this last part is just, okay, let's just briefly consider some of these false images. What are some common images um, that we can have of God, false images that we can have of the true God? 
Because there is a truth. And, and I've got to be able to come to God and say, there's this humility that I'm not going to insist that God, God has to fit me. But no, I'm going to let God reshape what that image is. Well, the first one I'm going to call this, this false image that's really common is I'm going to call it a cardboard image that focuses on one trait. Usually what we do is we focus on one trait of God at the expense of other ideas that God says about himself. I think probably the most common is that we focus, well, God is a God of love. Is that true? Yes. The Bible says it. It's very clear. God is a God of love. But if we take that one trait and we focus exclusively at that one trait, what we get is this kind of one-dimensional view of God. We get this cardboard image that we cut out. It's not the real person. And not only that, but when we focus on one image as the exclusion of others, even that one trait, we get confused because we have an unbalanced view of it. Let me give you an example. You know, let's say that my children see me as loving and generous. I hope they do. Those are good traits, and I hope that that's true, that they see me that way. But let's say that that's the only trait that they see. And therefore, they conclude that, that because I'm loving and generous, anything that they desire that they think I can afford, they they're just know that I want to give it to them. In fact, they're so confident you know, they can go take my wallet, take my credit card, start buying things uh, because they assume that I would always want to give it to them. Now, I want to tell you, I may be loving and generous, but that's a really wrong view of my love and generosity. That's a really shallow view. In my love for them, you see, that's, it's not only that I'm loving and generous, but I also want to be discerning. And so in my discernment, I realize there's some things that they want that aren't best for them, and I'm trying to teach them certain values. I want to teach them about responsibility and hard work and certain things and the value of money, and all those are expression of my love. And so if they only see that one element, they not only get me totally wrong, but they actually are redefining love and generosity in a way that is totally inappropriate. My friends, that's what we do when we look at God through one trait, one category. One element of us, yes, he is love, but he's also holy and just, and, and I have to understand everything in the Bible if I'm going to understand him properly. And we're going to have this cardboard image, but another common mistake is that we have kind of a stick figure image that, that we can understand. And, and what happens here is that we look at the Bible and we see something that God says about himself that we just can't understand. And so then what we try to do is we try to redefine it into terms that we can understand. You know, I think it's like a child who looks at it and says, well, here, you know, all I can do is I can understand it and draw it as a stick figure, and I'm going to insist that my stick figure is, is accurate. Well, no, it's a child's view of it. It's, it's you know, it's simple. It's, it's so simple that it's, you might kind of get a little glimpse, but it's totally inaccurate. Examples of this, I see when the people talk about the Bible's teachings on miracles. Well, because I can't understand them, therefore they can't be true. Therefore, the Bible's telling of them can't be true. Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. Where people come and they say, well, creation. How could God speak things into existence? And therefore, since I can't understand it, therefore it's false. Everything has to have materialistic sources. Now, even though that when you look at the evidence of, of nature, it points towards a, being more consistent with the story of creation, because I can't understand God doing it, therefore I reject that it's even possible. And the fact is, we've got to realize that God is God and we're not. We're creatures that have been created by God. And I always think of it this way. If, if we were to have a couple ants that are sitting there trying to observe and saying, I wonder what it's like to be human. How well do you think they would explain what it means to be human? I don't think very well. And the idea is, is that 
the ants and us are both created beings. There's arguably a far greater gap between us and God than there is between us and the ants. And we're sitting there saying, I think I can understand God. God has to fit my box. Now, we're drawing stick figures and say that God can be no greater than that. You see, that's a wrong view. A third image that's common is that we insist that the politically correct image of God that's non-offensive. And so there are a lot of things in the Bible that it talks about you know, that go against our cultural values. Any ideas of God's holiness or his justice, any idea of, of you know, eternal um, consequences and a judgment before God, boy, those, those things are so offensive. Or that God would call anything morality, even sexual morality, wrong. You know, how could you say that? And so we want to have this idea of this very friendly God that is affirming and approving and politically correct. I love uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. And look what he says about what he saw with this problem. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of everything we happen to like to do, doing, uh, what does it matter so long as they're contented? You know, as long as they're happy. He continues, what we want, in fact, is not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly, as they said, uh, at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. And you look at that and you say, boy, he got that so right. And that's what so many people try to insist on. That's a false image. It's, it's what we want God to be, but it's not who God indeed is. Another view that, that is very common is that we see God as, as a moral teacher and a divine consultant. You know, that it, it, people especially will talk about Jesus. Oh, he's such a great moral teacher. He's a great example. And, and, um, but here's the problem. Is that if I think of Jesus only as a teacher, then his teachings are recommendations. You see, a, a teacher is like a consultant. He's giving us ultimate control of our life. And so he's sitting there saying, well, here are the ideas, and I'm encouraging you to do this. But you are ultimately God of your own life. You call your own shots. You know, you have the right and I'm just kind of giving you some suggestions here. And the fact of the matter is, is that God, by very nature, isn't a consultant. He is God. And his truth aren't subjections. They are truth. And he calls us to not, you know, when, when he calls us, he, he doesn't call us with suggestions. He calls us as one who has ultimate authority over our lives. And as long as I have final say, I'm really not obeying. In fact, even again, another example with this. You know, some people will say, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Well, we're doing the things that we like, that we agree with. It would be like me saying, if I have young children and saying, hey, come over, see how obedient my kids are. I'm going to feed them dessert and say, eat your dessert. Look, they eat their dessert. Aren't they obedient? Of course they are. They want to do that. What happens when I give them the vegetables? If they start throwing them at me, we've got a problem. You see, the, the question of their obedience to me isn't determined by how well they do the things they agree with. It's what happens when we disagree. What happens when God stands outside of us and isn't just advising, but saying, here is truth. Do we relate to him and God and say, because it's truth, I'm going to adjust to you? Or do we say, oh, no, I don't really, you know, you're just a consultant. I want to think of you that way. That's the image that I have. But my friends, that's not who the true God is. Another one that is extremely common is that we think of God with the image of a genie who exists to serve us. In fact, I will tell you, in my own experience in 30-plus years of being a pastor, the most common reason that people have that once maybe used to go to church, used to believe in God, but have walked away, is at some point in time, God has failed them as a genie. 
Now, they would never say that, but that's in reality what it is. Because what they'll tell me is that I had this problem and I prayed to God and I asked him and I did all these things and God didn't answer my prayer and how could I believe in God? And basically they're saying, in reality, God exists for me. God is the genie and I've been trying to figure out how to rub his lamp the right way and I prayed and I did the right things. I did all the things that I would think make him happy and he was a terrible genie because he failed to fulfill my wishes. And so how can I believe in a God that doesn't act as a good genie? Now, you want, want you to see that when we have that view of God, there may be some people here that you, you're struggling with God, and it's because God failed in some way. But what you're doing is that I am God, and God exists to serve me. I discern what's right. And, and, and if I perform right for him, he has to obey me. And if he didn't, I'm angry, I'm mad. And my friends, there are times that God works in ways that he didn't answer a prayer, he's let bad things happen. I don't understand why. I'm not making light of that. And there are many that struggle. But I want you to realize that if you're walking away from God that way, it's because you have this image of a genie, not of God. You have, a, you have this genie who isn't serving you well, not a God who exists outside of you and sometimes has plans that we don't understand and isn't here to do everything that we demand the way that we think it should go. The last image that we have as a false image is is a religious image of God. Now, some people might be saying, wait a second, we're talking about God. Isn't believing in God by very definition religious? How can you have a false religious view? Well, here's the idea. It's often when I, I hear people will say something like, aren't all religions the same? They're all just ways to work our way towards God. In a sense, I will say that all religions other than biblical Christianity are at the core the same. They're all taking a religious approach to God. And essentially what religion is, all religion starts with the idea that there is a God or there are gods or there is some kind of divine and there's a separation between us and God or between us and the divine. And so religion then tells us the rules that we have to do, how we work our way towards God, how we fix things with God, how we become more in touch with the divine in our lives. And different religions just have different rules about the things that you're supposed to do, the things you're not supposed to do, and, um, you know, things we should, you know, get in touch with God. You know, if we do the wrong things, then we, God gets mad, and we've got to fear him. We do the right things, hopefully we, we're pleasing God. Now, that's all religions. And what can happen is that we take that view of religion and we put it on God. So we see God as this God that we, the true God of the Bible, that we have to perform for. We have to keep rules. And if you have that view of God, that's a false image. That's not what the Bible teaches about God. That's not what God reveals about himself. The fact is what the Bible reveals about himself is that there is a gap between us and him. Problem of sin. The Bible says there's nothing we can do to fix it. But the Bible, the Bible, God of the Bible isn't a, a God that focuses on religion, but on relationship. It's a God that says, I want a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to fix the sin issue so we can have this intimate, close relationship. But the way you do it isn't by you doing, by religion, by you performing. The way to do it isn't by what you do, how you work your way towards me. It's how I'm going to come to you. See, the God of the Bible is one that is, is called us to relationship but it's a relationship not that we earn through keeping rules of religion, but it's a relationship that comes through grace with recognizing that we couldn't fix it 
And that's why God sent Jesus, who was the perfect expression of God's heart and his character and his whole plan. And he came and he lived the perfect life. And when he died on the cross, he literally took our sins upon himself. He took the punishment that our sins deserved upon himself. So that any believe in him, God literally takes our sins, he puts it on Jesus, they're punished, and he takes Jesus' righteousness and he puts it on us so that the sin that would separate us is removed. Not by our efforts, not by our goodness, not by religion, but through God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have this relationship with the eternal God. And let me close by saying, when we look at this, I hope that we can not only try to have this right view, but if you have a wrong view, that you see, again, this, these aren't my opinions. I'm trying to say this is what God's word says. And we need to be aware of how easily we're led astray to these wrong images and pictures of God. But for all of us, it starts with saying, do you have not a religious God that you're trying to perform for, but you have a relational God who wants to forgive you and have a personal relationship with you. And that's not going to happen by you keeping rules better. I'm not going to tell you the things that hoops you have to jump through. It happens by recognizing that God isn't a God of religion, that it's not about rules. It's about a relationship through grace by accepting Jesus Christ, by admitting, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I agree with you. I can't fix this. But I also recognize that's why you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. So that if I agree with you that I have that need and I ask you to forgive me through Jesus, he forgives me and he gives me your righteousness and, and I can have a relationship not based on what I do, but based on my humility and accepting what you have done for me. My friends, if there are any here that have never done that, God invites you to do that today. Just even where you're at, just to, you know, even say the prayer of just saying, God, I agree with you, and I ask you to forgive me through Jesus. I, I don't want an image of who I want you to be. I want a relationship with a real God as you've revealed yourself to be. And Father, I want to have that through the only way that it's possible, through faith in Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that you will embrace that this morning.